Good morning. My name is Mark Butler, and I am a minister over at Anchor Church, just down the hallway. And as Pastor Gene's up in the great state of Michigan, where I'm from, uh, he's asked me to speak this morning. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity. In 1935, a weary traveler had hiked for miles across the desert. And as he continued his, his journey, he soon, as soon his water supply was gone. And he knew in time that he would begin to weary and fade and even die of thirst. And so as he continued his journey ac- across this desert, he was just hoping, beyond hope, to find something that could save him. And at first it looked like a mirage, but there, it looked like a, a, a building, a shelter, a cabin in the distance. And he thought, could it be? I might as well make my way towards it. Hopefully there is a shelter that I can just get out of the scorching sun as he continued to make his way across. And the mirage turned out not to be a mirage, but an actual cabin out in this desert. And he thought, hope, I can get out of the sun at least. Maybe, maybe there's water. And as he approached this cabin, not only did he find it to shelter him from the sun, but out in front was a well with a pump coming forth from it. And he staggers to it, and he grabs the handle, and he begins to pump the pump. And out comes a cloud of dust. If he had tears left in his body, he would have cried right there. But he just slumped down, waiting for the inevitable to happen. And as he hit into the pump, he heard a, a clang, a jangle, a tin can bumping against metal. And he realized that shouldn't be there. And he looked down in this tin can, and in it was a note. And he proceeded to pull the note, and this is what it said. Dear stranger, this pump's all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer in it. And it should last quite a few years. The washer will dry out and the pump needs to be primed. So, under a large white rock by the base of the pump, I buried a jug of water and corked it up. There's just enough water in the jug to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. So, pour about a quarter of the water into the pump and then wait a couple of minutes to let that wa- leather washer soak. Then pour the rest of the medium fast down the pump and pump as hard as you can. You'll get water. Have faith. This well has never run dry. When you're watered up, fill the jug, put it back where you found it for the next stranger. Signed, Pete. What would you do? You've come across a desert. Your desire is to have water. You are dying of thirst. Would you just take the jug and drink it? Or would you pour it all away, hoping for more? This is the question before us in the text that Paul writes today in Ephesians. So let's look at it again in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And he says this, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened into their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and are taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, 
we pray that as we open up your word, you'll open up our hearts to hear with new understanding. Lord, you have spoken through your servant Paul so many years ago to a truth that lays before us today. A choice to walk with you or to walk on our own. So Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that you open up our eyes to see what you want us to see, to walk as you want us to walk, and to follow as you have called us to. So Lord, we just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. This passage is a continuation of what Pastor Gene had been talking about last week in walking a manner worthy of Christ. And so that, just to review a little bit, a life that, a walking in a manner worthy of Christ is a life that is not based on merit, on my merit, but lives humbly in the grace-filled hands of Christ. Not believing that I've arrived, but I'm striving to embrace the grace and mercy of what Jesus has done and what he has given. It's not living for myself, but living in a community so that the world may know that Jesus is alive. And so the first part of chapter 4 Pastor Gina talked about this. This is walking in that worthy manner of Christ. And then he kind of breaks here and he says, okay, this is what I mean by this. So he says, don't walk as the Gentiles. Now, some of you may be unbelievable Bible scholars and and you stop and say, wait, Paul's writing to a group of churches in Ephesus which were Gentile churches. So what does he mean, don't walk as the Gentiles? Is he saying that you, you convert over or something like that? He's telling them, don't walk as you used to. Don't walk in the way of the world. The out, those outside of faith. We would say, it'd be listening to the world's desires or listening to what the world says. Don't walk that way. And that's what Paul says. Don't walk as the Gentiles. Don't go back to your old way of life. And then he makes three simple points to say, this is what it means when I say, don't walk as the Gentiles. He says, don't walk in the Genti- as the Gentiles in the futility and in darkness. And the futility of their thought and in darkness. The futility of thought is thinking this way. It is thinking that I am blessing God by just being near him. It is this idea that I can earn my faith. I can earn heaven. I am a good person and I do good things. That's futility in thinking because it's about what I can do, not what Christ has done. In the end, he says that futility in thinking becomes short-sighted because it's about what I can bring to God instead of what God's done and what he has given. And he says, when you're short-sighted, you become blind. Is walking with your eyes closed. I heard a story of a a woman who had had to have reconstructive nose surgery, in part because of something happened when she was younger as a teen. She and her sister were playing a game in which her sister blindfolded her and said, I will lead you and guide you. Just follow me. And as they were following and leading, she had turned and she had ran into a pole and it crushed her nose, and it took several surgeries in order to fix the damage that was done. And when I think about that, I think that's walking by the way of the world. I put on the blindness, the short-sightedness, and I just kind of follow and say, yeah, yeah, I should, I should earn as much money as I can get, and I should collect as many things as I have, and it, and it should be about my pleasure and my desires. And Paul says, that's short-sighted. That's not seeing the eternal. That's walking with a blindfold in the dark. And then finding out that you ran into something that wasn't what you wanted. And so Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles in that futility of thought that I can do this. Because when the end, it starts to harden your heart. The harden is this mental stubbornness. I think of a, a, a teenager or a child. A teenager where it's, I can do this. Leave me alone, mom and dad. I got this. And you're trying to help and, 
And I think back to my own life, how many times I have turned to my parents and said, I got this. I know what I'm doing. And it's that stubbornness, that digging in. I find that that is true for me today. There are times that people come in my life and they start to speak a truth into me and I say, you know what, I'm not listening to you. Because doggone it, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I get this hardness in my heart, this mental stubbornness. It's this idea of, I have this, and to refuse to acknowledge that I have a need. I have four children, ages 13 through uh, 7. And I find that there are times, as, as I raise them, there are times that they need me as a dad. There are times that I can provide and help and structure and support. And there are times that they're mentally just stubborn and hard-hearted, and they refuse to acknowledge the simple help I can give. How are we like that with our own Heavenly Father? There are times that he is reaching down, looking to help us, and we're like, no, I got this. I can do this because we have futility of thought. We have hardness. And he says, be careful because hardness develops into callousness. The callousness is this idea that Paul's trying to convey. It is a hardness of the heart in which we no longer feel shame for the sin in our life. And as we go through life, there are times that you're going to sin. There are times that, or when you sin, that you should feel shame. And when you do, thank the Lord that that has happened. That is the Holy Spirit continuing to remind us that he is there with us. It is when we feel no shame for the sin that we commit that we've become callous to God and what he's called us to do. And so Paul says, be careful. Don't think that you have this and that you can do it on your own because it hardens your heart, it calluses your heart, and you don't feel the shame or the sin in your life and your need for a Savior. And Paul writes that this way of thinking, this Gentile way of thinking, this way of the world, leads to being given over and slaves to the very thing that you desired in the first place. You see, Paul writes, he says they're given over, and he's using the same idea of what God said to Pharaoh with Moses, where he gave him over to his heart. He hardened his heart, and it basically Pharaoh got what, exactly what he wanted. We tend to think that when God says, I'll just, fine, I'll leave you alone and give you your, your, whatever you want, we think of that as being blessed, but in truth, it could be a punishment. The punishment of just letting sin reign. Think of an addict at this point whether it be gambling or chemical or alcohol or, or lust, when a person becomes addicted at first, they desire it because they, they think it, it gives them pleasure. And soon the, thing, the very thing that gave them pleasure and the thing that desire controls their very life. And they must respond to it. They have lost control over it. And now that it controls them, it is materialism in our life where we desire to have things and soon we find that the things that we own own us. And so Paul writes, be careful, don't get given over to it because you become a slave to it. You have a reckless desire for it. It has this idea that Paul's crying out, be careful that your living doesn't, isn't based on your desires or your pleasures. Because as you grasp, gratify them soon, you won't feel the same way and they then own you. What I noticed when I was studying this passage and this, the Gentile way of thinking most of it comes down to this. It's a lot of I's and me's and my's. What I want, what I can do, what I desire, what I deserve. It's my stuff, it's my things, it's, what, it's about me. And Paul says that is not walking in the manner worthy. In fact, it's very, the very opposite. And so he starts in verse 20, and he says this. 
But that is not the way you learn Christ. Paul basically stops and he says, there's a Gentile walk when the men are worthy of Christ and earlier in chapter 4. Then he starts a section in verse 17, but don't walk as the Gentiles do, because then he says, but you walk differently. But that is not the way you learn Christ in verse 20, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul says, time out. You don't want to walk in this manner of Gentiles? Then remember this. Remember the gospel of Jesus. That we are dead in sin. That our efforts will never be enough. That we're worse off than we ever realized. And what Jesus did is far greater than we could ever imagine. And that life in Christ is hope. Know that grace is real. That sin is evil and that there's hope in Jesus. You see, Paul writes, you were dead in sin, sin having its reign and power over you, but because of what Jesus has done, you are now dead to sin and the power in your life. You don't have to answer its siren call. The very thing of the Gentile way of living is that soon your desires control you, and you have no choice. And he says, no, the way of Christ is that he has control over you, and you have choice. Think now of a recovered addict who would never say, oh, I've defeated whatever addiction I've had. They would just simply say, it no longer has its power as it once did. I have an option. I have hope. And so it's Paul's writing the same thing this way, that you are no longer controlled in that old way of thinking, but you're now being renewed, verse 23. Yet you are renewed in Christ. And renewed here has this idea of being new and different, but actually it means to be better. We make the mistake many times as we walk in our faith that I give up my life for Jesus, that I've sacrificed in order to be a follower of Jesus. That's not true. Christ gave up his life for us. We gave up a dead self. We gave up a dying and decaying body a soul that was wretched and separate in order to gain life in Christ. Paul's really saying, take off the grave clothes, the clothes of one who is dead, and put, your li- put on the clothes of Christ, the one who is alive, one who makes you new, better than you ever could dream, the true self of who you really are in Christ, a version of you that is a, what God intended it for to be. So don't put on these old clothes and walk in this old way, but put on this new way of thinking, this new life which is in Christ and what he's done, a life that he has for you. And so he says, put on these new clothes which are righteous and holy. And we tend to think in our minds that righteous and holy means that I need to act like I'm perfect and I have all my life together and that there's no sin near me. and I can't be near it at all this pharisaical way of thinking. And Jesus tells a story uh, to, to his disciples, and he says, you know, there was once a man who was walking down the road who was, who was a, a, attacked by robbers, leaving him for dead. And the holy and righteous priest walks by. The truth of the story is the priest did what he was supposed to do. He was not to touch that decaying, dying body, because then he would have corrupted himself And therefore, he would have had to go through a cleansing and he couldn't perform his duties. The Levite doing the same thing. 
But Jesus says they misunderstood what righteousness really is, that righteousness is right living, seeing people as God sees them. And so he then says the person who is righteous in this story is the Samaritan who stops and takes care of those wounds, who bandages him and takes him to to a place to have care and, and comfort. We are to put on the clothes of Christ. And what does Christ demand of us? What does Christ require of us? To love God and to love others. Righteousness and holiness is contrary to Gentile thinking. Because in Gentile thinking, I do what's best for me. I do what gains me the best advantage. But I need to line up my thinking as Christ, who who humbled himself and gave up his very life for us. How do I do this? Paul, you write this and you say, walk worthy, don't walk as the Gentiles, walk as Christ. And I go, well, that sounds good on paper. And yet he tells us, by the word and by the spirit, to wash ourselves in the word of God, the scriptures, to understand and read, but not only just to read as a mental ascent, but then to stop and say, Holy Spirit, lead and guide. Help me through this day. So as we walk in this manner worthy, it's not a matter of something I can muster myself up to do, the Gentile way of thinking, but it's simply humbly saying, God, today, lead and guide me through your word and through your spirit. And then Paul continues on in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's interesting here because Paul is actually quoting another passage of Scripture from the Old Testament in Zechariah 8.16 when he says to speak the truth with your neighbor. Zechariah 8.16 says this, to speak the truth to one another and make sound decisions. And I think to myself, make sound decisions? That sounds okay. So you like make a pro and con list of everything I do, like here are this, here's the pros, here's the cons, and make the decision. To make sound decisions carries this idea of living your life with others in mind. The decisions you make are not based on you and your pros and cons, but on the effect they will have on another person. Changes how I look at that passage now. Paul is saying that we need to live our life with integrity, live in truth and honesty. Integrity means that all the components of your life work together. That there's no difference between you on Sunday as there is you on Tuesday at work. That how you are with your spouse and your kids is the same way you are with your co-workers and and, and your friends at a party. It is who you are. It is integral. He says, so be honest. Be the same person in Christ. Not just a Sunday thing, but an everyday thing. Not just every once in a while, but today. And to be honest with you, when I hear that, I think to myself, how, Lord, how do I live today that way? Because there are some days I just can't. There are some people I run into that I just don't want to. We go back to the Spirit and to the Word, but I would encourage you that there are times that as we pray, we just simply say, God, give me the next 15 minutes. Give me the next 15 minutes to walk and be righteous as you are, to look to others as you've commanded me to. Because there are people in my life that when I see them coming, I want to turn. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just me. Maybe that's not the way it is for you. But I'm assuming the same. That there are neighbors and coworkers that when you see them coming, you're thinking, I've got to look busy. 
And so we pray, Lord, give it me all I have. And then after I pray for that first 15 minutes, I pray for the next. Lord, now give me the next. I can't do this because that's the Gentile way of thinking. So Lord, I lean on you to help me through, to be honest, and to be a person that looks out for others and see the effect of my life on them. Because Paul finishes up verse 25 with this phrase that we are members of one another. We tend to think of our relationship with God in an American fashion where it's just me and God and we just kind of live our lives together. But Paul's writing here, it's this, that yes, it is your Christ and your relationship with Christ in your life and others. What is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Your faith affects my faith and mine yours. Together, we live in Christ. This is a powerful statement to the unity and the community of believers. But it also changes the way I live and interact with everybody I meet. Because now, when I think about caring for each other, I realize that my life affects yours and how I care for you. My faith, the honesty in which I live before Christ, affects the way you live in Christ. And so we build into each other. We build each other up in love and good deeds. And we build each other up in faith because that's our responsibility. So where have we come in this passage this morning that we can live life short-sighted and drink the jug that's right there because it's right there and we can satisfy my desires? Or we can see that Christ has changed the way I see life. And we pour our life out to him, finding that a well of living water pouring out in us refreshing those around us. So that choice I gave you at the beginning, what would you do? Would you drink the jug or would you pour it away is the same choice that Paul gives us in this passage. Would you live the Gentile way and drink the jug, being short-sighted, thinking it's about you, or would you pour it away to find living water that can refresh your soul? Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for a time in your word. Continue to lead and guide us that we can know you and make you known. In your son's blessed name, amen.